Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. I'm Larissa Pelkington from the Houston Forensic Science Center. And while you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, greetings, Glenn. You know, since our, our last recording, uh, things have gotten a little more serious, but, um, you know, still in good spirits uh, out here in Arizona. And you? Yeah, um, I, I think I know what you're referring to. <laughs> yeah. You're re- you're referring to Match Martin as being canceled, of course. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, it's so it seems kind of quaint because that was like the first thing I remember hearing about that was canceled, and, and with everything else that's been canceled since then, it was like, oh yeah, I remember about that now. Or were you referring to that trick ending on The Bachelor? That's really what you're referring to, right? I I you didn't see that twist coming. I haven't really watched network TV in like a decade, so I. I <laughs> uh, so spoiler alert: it didn't work out. Really, The Bachelor didn't work out. Didn't work out. See, I used to be able to keep up on those kinds of things by watching The Soup uh, oh, yeah, with Joe yeah, McHale. Yeah. Oh, I love I, I love Joe McHale. But ever since that show got canceled, I have no idea what's going on in the <laughs> the world of of reality TV. But you are doing okay, you and your family. I am, and we are. Yep, I'm. I'm now uh, working from home in Arizona, but you know, Idemia is kind of set up to. I mean, it's a you know, multinational company, and uh, with locations across the U.S. and and uh, and in France, especially. But you know, it was rare, even when I was working in the office, to have a meeting that didn't include someone in a different time zone. And that was just kind of the way things worked. Plus, I was already working one day a week from home on Fridays. So now that's just kind of been multiplied out. But um, my my wife also started working from home. My son in college is now home and started uh, started his classes yesterday. My son in high school. Uh, I have a friend who teaches high school, and he's basically like pre-recording an epi- a, like a, a lesson for like 10 minutes every day for his students. My son goes to a private school, and they're just – full bell-to-bell classes the schedule has not changed in the least oh really oh wow he's attending full-time from his room and must still be in uniform (laughs) oh wow wow it's the jesuits it's the jesuits you know they're (laughs) Uh, okay yeah yeah anyway so uh between uh you know all that we've also started a family movie night uh every night you know, picking out some uh, some some films. My wife and I both, you know, meeting. We met each other working at a movie theater, so uh, kind of exposing the kids to some movies from the '80s and '90s that uh, they still haven't seen yet. And last night was my cousin Vinny. Good choice. Very good choice. A lot more cussing than I remember, but still. Yeah, it's funny when you do go back and see some of those movies from the '70s and '80s, and it's like full-on swearing and nudity, and like, oh yeah, I don't remember any of that. Uh, it's probably because we watched it so many times on TBS and TNT, you know. No, I'm talking about when when I was a kid. I don't remember the oh. swearing and the, and the nudity. <laughs> Got it. And- so uh, anyway, you still be able to do your your work for the most part from home? Yeah, I, well, no, not really. Um, you know, a big big part of it was traveling and teaching, which you know is right. on on hiatus. But okay, um, I'll be doing some more cases and trying to finish up other projects. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be quiet for a while, but um, my my hope is that this blows over in a, at least a month or two. So. Yeah, I guess we'll see. Although there is concern about the next virus that's coming. I don't know if you've heard this. It's called the Modelo virus. <laughs> Bad joke. Uh, well, you know, the the 
even worse than that would have to be the Dosakis. Dosakis, right? No, that, that's the second one. That's the second okay. one. Oh boy! Well, we can at least still laugh about it. And um, so, in, in kind of along those lines, you know, Glenn and I, you know, decided you know we're still going to um, put out the podcast. You know, we're in no danger to each other since we're we've been practicing this social distancing thing for. Oh, six or seven years now recording in different states. So I want to put this out so that, you know, all you examiners, especially, you know, ones that still have to go to the office or maybe are on a rotating or limited schedule or there's, you know, different agencies are doing lots of different things. You know, you can still, you know, hear us talk about fingerprints and uh, at least for a brief time, not have to worry about everything else that's going on uh, in the world right now. Uh, so with that, we have decided to go into a another case uh, exploration, and that is the case of David Cam. Similar to what we did, you know, a few years ago with the making a murderer and the staircase and O.J. Simpson. You know, some of these cases, that, big cases that we covered. This is another big case, but it didn't really, I don't think, get big coverage uh, outside of Indiana, uh, where it was, uh, where it all occurred. Unless you're, you know, a junkie for like 48 hours and and Dateline uh, and may have seen it uh, on that. But uh, so we're going to go through and we're going to do a little more detail in uh, explaining everything that happened uh, in the case, especially in this first episode. We'll we'll follow up with a second episode to, you know, wrap things up. Also kind of really explain things and describe what's going on. So you don't have to, you know, have watched the episodes, which is kind of like when we talked about making a murderer in the staircase, it was kind of with the assumption that everyone listening had also kind of watched the same episodes that we had, you know, in relation to uh, the discussion. Right. First, I want to mention uh, some sources here. So the the main sources for for telling the story uh, are going to be uh, the forty eight hours uh, special. Uh, Murder on Lockhart Road, the Dateline Special, Mystery on Lockhart Road, the uh, you know Wikipedia page, uh, and also the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals uh, document uh, that I found online, uh, you know, describing some of the details in the case. I have a little bit of a personal connection with this case as well, which Eric, you obviously didn't know that when you had mentioned you know, working on the, doing this case. Exactly. And uh, I mean, it just it just so happens as we'll get into some of the elements of the case. I mean, some of the forensic signs in this case involve DNA, fingerprints, and bloodstain pattern analysis. And my mentor and trainers in bloodstain pattern analysis, Terry Labor and Bart Epstein, and Bart was on the a previous episode involving the staircase, so we had interviewed him before. And depending on how things go with this virus and all, maybe we can even get him on the horn to talk about this case. We'll, we'll see. Yep, fingers crossed. Yeah, uh, Bart was uh, Bart was involved in this case. So I remember this case back in 2000, well, probably two or three, uh, when I was just kind of starting my career getting involved in it. I remember talking to Bart and Terry about it and all the twists and turns. And and this case has gone on for – it went on for a number of years. So I was kind of getting a lot of this in real time and I'll, I'll share, you know, I guess what I can as, as stuff come, comes up. But I, I think the other thing we, we want listeners to know is, like you said, we're going to do this in two parts. And we're going to take the first part from the prosecution standpoint, sort of what the evidence that the state had against 
uh, Cam and why they were making a case against him in the first place. And then we're going to, in the second episode, sort of deconstruct that a little bit and take a look at what some of the weaknesses of the evidence were. And and then I guess you and I can – you and I haven't, haven't discussed this, but we can discuss what our thoughts are and – was this an injustice or justice that that was done, and and what what our feelings are, like we did with the other cases? I'm sure we'll have positions to share. We're asking you, the listener, to stick around for both episodes. And if you do know this case, just pay attention to the fact that we're going to be breaking this into two different episodes, taking it from two different viewpoints. And if you don't know this case at all, you you kind of have a choice to make. You know, you can you know kind of at this point or as we start this discussion, you know, do a little quick check on Wikipedia to see you know what the ending is. Uh, or if you don't want the ending uh, spoiled, you can just kind of listen through uh, our discussion over these two parts and see, like you mentioned, twists and turns. Holy cow, are there twists and turns in this case? I mean, it kind of rivals the staircase with the number of twists and turns. Yeah, I would agree. So you can kind of go along for the ride and see how your uh, you know, opinion evolves uh, given the evidence on, on both sides. I, so I came across, it's like you mentioned, it's kind of funny. I, I came across this just listening to a, a podcast. Um, Dateline has... <laughs> Kind of funny. They've basically taken all of their TV episodes, taken out the video, and just made them audio podcasts. So I was just listening to one randomly, and it was this case, and I was like, "Holy cow, Glenn, we got to talk about this!" And you're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I know all about that case." I'm like, oh, of course you do, Glenn. <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, again, I, I was just I was so fortunate to have such a prominent, you know, instructor in the field. I mean, yeah, you know, it's like if you were instructed personally by Pat Wertheim, you'd probably get exposed to some pretty famous world, you know, world-renowned cases. Yeah, it's, it, you know, I, I I consider myself fortunate to have you know worked with him for so long, but you know, also it's kind of like that close miss because you know he was there, but also a hundred miles away in Tucson, so it was far enough away that it was not like you know kind of the daily exposure you get, see. but still. Yeah, you know, I, I still consider myself lucky to have to have worked with him for that time. Uh, I guess with that, we can uh, we can kind of get into things. Uh, David Cam, uh, he is going to be the you know the subject uh, of uh, of these two episodes. Uh, he is a former Indiana State tr- Police trooper. I uh, was living with his wife and two kids in Georgetown, Indiana. And it's a very small town of about two thousand people. It's uh, in Indiana, but really just about 20 miles across the Ohio River from Louisville, Kentucky, way down in the, you know, the southern portion. Uh, he was a member of the SWAT team, you know, you know special kind of you know, responsibilities with the Indiana State Police, but in May of 2000 decided to step away from law enforcement to start working for his uncle's company you have more time at home. Hey, do, do you remember how many years he had on the force? I, I, I don't. I mean, my guess would be it would be over a decade, but I, I I don't know. Do you recall? I believe it was a yeah somewhere in that decade or about range. Uh, he was uh, at the time in his you know mid thirties, thirty six, I believe. Yeah. Okay, that sounds about right. So yeah, I believe it was a it was about a decade or so. Okay. He's married to Kimberly Cam, and they have two kids: a boy named Bradley and a little girl named Jill. Bradley is seven, and Jill is five. So on. On Thursday night, uh, September 28th, so again, just a couple months after he, he retired from from the uh, the state uh, police, 
Uh, he, uh, David Cam, arrives at about 7 p.m. to play basketball at the Georgetown Community Church. And uh, Kim, Brad, and Jill are last seen leaving swim practice and headed home also around 7 p.m. And at about a little before 9.30, right around 9.30, uh, David Kim says that he arrived home and found Kimberly, Bradley, and Jill shot to death in their garage. So Kim is on the garage floor, slightly bent at the waist with a long pool of blood running from her head. And this pool of blood has a, you know, basically a stream that, you know, goes out of the garage proper and down the driveway even a little bit. Yep. You know, David runs into the garage, you know, checks on Kim, sees it really that she's already dead. Uh, the doors to the uh, the Ford Bronco uh, were open. And David thinks, you know, where, where are the kids? And this is a Bronco, so it's only got the really two front doors within passenger seats uh, still in the back. So he crawls in on the passenger seat uh, to seize, seize the kids. Uh, Jill is buckled in the back passenger side with blood in her hair. And uh, Brad was kind of partially bent over the seat in the back behind the driver. Uh, David crawls onto the console and says that, you know, it seemed like Brad might still be alive. So he picks up Brad, pulls him out of the Bronco, through the passenger drawer, lays him on the garage floor, and starts CPR. Uh, he then calls the Indiana State Police, you know, again, where he used to work just a couple months beforehand, and just, you know, screams into the phone, everyone get uh, to his house. He runs across the street to his uncle's house. Uh, his uncle is uh, Nelson Lockhart. If you didn't catch that, the Lockhart Road is the name of the road. So it's like a kind of a prominent family in town. Yeah, you know, I actually had never noticed that. Yeah, that's one of the things I kind of noticed that tonight and just doing a little more research on huh. it is the Lockharts are kind of a big family in town. And uh, Nelson Lockhart lives across the street. The the his his uh, David Cam's boss, the new company he'd left the state police to go work for. Yeah, is is Sam Lockhart. So, yeah, I, I, I had seen that was like the name of the episodes, but I had never kind of put it all together that this is, you know, from his family as well. So uh, Nelson, who also used to be a Indiana State Trooper, runs into the garage, you know, reaches into the back seat and tries to be careful, but, you know, touches uh, Jill, the little girl's arm, to see that she's dead, and then basically keeps David out of the garage until the police arrive. Right. So, I mean, as you described, I mean, this is a fairly horrific crime scene. I mean, you know, the idea that you're arriving after playing this basketball game to find, you know, your your family murdered like this, you know, from his perspective. I mean, it's just it's unbelievable to even think of that possibility. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and you can hear it in the 911 call uh, that's that's you know played in all of these you know, Dateline, 48 Hours episodes. You know, he, he's just, you know, screaming to for everyone to get out there. And and again, they know him, right? Yeah. They don't, they don't the, the dispatcher doesn't say, you know, go to, you know, 123 Lockhart Road. They say, go to David Cam's house. Yeah. Right? They, everyone, everyone knows who this is and where he lives. They've all been to his house before. And I, I personally don't put a lot of weight 
on the 911 call. You know, not here. I mean, I don't not, not no. in this case. In some of the other cases that are a little more famous, you know, you always have the skeptical investigator who listens to the 911 call and goes, you know, if a person was really you know, suffering or in pain, they wouldn't have said that or they wouldn't have, you know, voiced it that way or they would have been, it sounded disingenuous. I, who knows how people will react. But, I mean, in this, I mean, he really does sound terrified, horrified. He's not calm in any way, but, again, I don't I don't put weight one way or the other by people's reactions during the 911 call. I know sometimes that just comes up and that always bugs me. How the hell would you know how you would react under those circumstances? I, I feel the same way. That that's a that's a real rough way to judge someone in that uh, in that moment. And you know, I I, I find it hard to uh, you know to be able to judge someone's reaction as an indication of, of guilt or innocence. Yeah, for sure. Because who knows? Who knows how I would react? Who knows how anyone would? Uh, in this kind of horrific situation, like you're saying, he he sees this blood. He sees his wife, you know, dead on the ground, and then looks in the car and sees his two kids. So, right. I, I mean, that's just you know, it just changes your whole world in an instant. The so the police arrive, right? Um, a lot of the the police that are there are recent coworkers of uh, of David Cam. And uh, the lead investigator is described as a childhood friend. You know, e- even in that first interview that you hear on, if you uh, listen or watch you know, any of the specials on this uh, this case, you kind of hear him. You know, everyone that first night with that first interview, you know, because you got to interview the husband. That's that's just kind of standard procedure for cases like this. Right. You kind of hear everybody, you know, being careful in how they handle it at least in this initial kind of first day thing do you think there was a problem with them getting involved at all in the first place i mean do you think that that there should have been some consideration to have brought in an outside agency yeah that's a good question you know looking at kind of where things went i'm not sure if i'm not sure if anyone kind of let their previous relationship with him affect the case Again, maybe this this what was described as a lead investigator as a childhood friend, you know, maybe uh, you know that would raise some eyebrows. But on the other hand, you know, that's that's my perspective growing up in the big city. Hmm. You know, if you live in a town of two thousand people, yeah, I mean, you're gonna know every, everyone's gonna you're know gonna know everybody. Well, like, yeah. what are you gonna do? Get in a neighboring county to <laughs> investigate. Or... Okay, so I don't know. I'm I'm kind of. I, yeah, I, I kind of see both sides of that. I'm throwing it out there. I mean, just it, given making a murderer where it, there was such a problem with where that. that was definitely a problem. <laughs> yeah, Stan Faith, who is the Floyd County prosecutor, boy, if if <laughs> if there's an indication that you there's only like you know two thousand people in town, Floyd County really kind of drives that home. <laughs> I, I can't imagine a Floyd County being being uh, bigger than that. But uh, he arrives a little after 10 p.m. to to take control of the situation. Again, you know, David arrives home at uh, around 9:30, maybe a little before 9:30, and uh, by a little after 10, the uh, the prosecutor is already there on site. I, I, when I did crime scene, I was never a fan when prosecutors would show up at the scene. I I, I did not like this. 
it wasn't didn't happen often, uh, but when it did, I was not a fan of that. That always strikes me as kind of strange. It just it seems not quite the time or the place for the prosecutor to be already involved. You know? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Let the investigation happen naturally. Collect the evidence you need to. I'm I'm just a big fan of just being, let's be real thorough, let's be, we're in charge, we're calling the shots. Although, I mean, I will tell you that it was sometimes nice getting some thoughts from the investigators or prosecutor from a distance while we were still at the scene about where the investigation was going and what evidence to sort of consider as the investigation would take a turn, but having them there... At the scene, controlling the investigation, I yeah was I do not like that. Right, no, I I I definitely see that uh, that point of view. Yeah, as he gets there, uh, he sees that. Well, and all the investigators see that uh, Kim and Jill had both been shot in the head, uh, what was described as execution style, and that uh, Brad had been shot in the chest. Kim, you know, the wife is lying by the passenger door I believe that's right just one just kind of occurred to me that she was she must have been driving so but I, that's the note I did take from the um, the special uh, but her pants were down and kind of strangely her shoes are set on top of the roof of the Bronco kind of above where the again it's a two-door vehicle but above where the rear passenger door would be right if that makes sense yep Brad is on his back. Uh, obviously, like I described earlier, uh, David had taken him out of the vehicle to try to do CPR on him. And there's a, a gray sweatshirt nearby. And the shoes is kind of a weird thing, right? If you go to a website called Murderpedia, uh, which <laughs> I, I'm sure you can put together what kind of website that is, you know, skip to kind of, you know, if you want to, you know, not spoil the ending here, skip to to photo gallery number two, you can see a, a crime scene photo of the, uh, the the Bronco with these shoes right on top. And it's it's just weird. It's, it really is kind of weird that these, there's just a pair of shoes on top of this car uh, that had belonged to the, the deceased victim here. Have you seen that that picture, Glenn? Oh yeah, I've, I've seen the crime scene photos. Um, okay. ba- back again, back when Bart and Terry worked the case, and and I think your point being here is, I mean, they are clearly neatly set side by side on top of the vehicle. Yeah, yeah. This is not they were sort of randomly askew. Uh, they had somehow landed or something. You know, one of them got thrown here or there. They they were neatly placed next to each other on top of the vehicle. It's bizarre. I I, I you know only assisted in a handful of, of crime scenes. You know, from, you know, bringing just that latent print expertise to it. And I know you did a whole lot more of that than I ever did. But I mean, even me, first thing I, I you know comment on and walking around in that crime scene would be, why are the shoes? She's got no shoes on. Why are her shoes on the? Like, why would? Why would they be there? Like, did did she take them off? Like, okay, so just imagine the scenario. She drove home. You know, she gets out of the car. She walks around to the passenger side because that's where the youngest child is to maybe help that youngest child out. 
and maybe takes her shoes off and just kind of puts them there and then is all of a sudden surprised by the perpetrator or or did the perpetrator put them there like yeah that, that, that actually what you just described was exactly what the uh, what i would have thought um and in fact initially did right. think was that her feet must have been sore or something maybe they were swollen and so she, right when she was done driving the car she takes them off puts them in her hands has them in her hands when she sets them on the hood or on the, 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 on roof. the vehicle right yeah, on the roof and and exactly as you said then she's about to help her kids when she's surprised by somebody perpetrator who does this and then that's when everything goes wrong and it, it, I, my assumption was that of course she had put these here so the you know the other strange thing is that her pants have been pulled down right and you know what what now what does that all mean uh, in in all of that scenario as well, that's that's got to be from the perpetrator because you don't. I mean, as you're bringing your kids inside, you don't pull your pants right. down. And and again, if it was Cam, then this is him staging it to make it look like something else. I mean, he worked as a trooper for ten years, right? Right. That if anyone's going to know how to stage a scene, it would be it would be David Cam. Right. And if he w- did stage it, I will say then the shoes on the vehicle. Are bizarre, but sort of a nice touch, but bizarre touch. <laughs> I mean, it just—you'd have to have such a strange mind to think to do that. Because I mean, right, if you were right. going to stage it, assuming that you kill her first, then you would take the clothes off, and then you would scatter them all over the garage and make it look forced. You wouldn't take the shoes neatly and set them <laughs> on top of the roof. That. Uh- it, no, I get it. It's just the, the way you said it. it was like, a, it's a nice touch. Yeah. It's, it's evil genius. <laughs> right, right. No, it, it really is. All right, so the the investigators take David Cam back to the station that night to conduct an initial interview that night. Again, he's the husband. He, even he knows he's got to be interviewed, and you know, got, they got to get that information so they can you know get out and find find who did this. And the investigators they have to start with the husband. It's it's just you know law of averages. That's that's you know, that's usually you know the reason for the crime. So that's that's just the logical starting place. So uh, he describes that Kim and the kids were supposed to get home from swim practice around seven thirty. And he has no recollection of anyone following her or any strange phone calls or or anything else that she was being stalked. He, he has no idea uh, who could have done this. Right. Uh, the investigators see that his sneakers and his T-shirt have blood on them and they uh, collect them for testing, which then leads into this initial collection of evidence. Almost right away, uh, Stan Faith uh, decides to hire Rodney Englert, uh, who is a, a private forensic analyst in Oregon who specializes in uh, blood spatter analysis. Interesting side note. I was just at the Pacific Northwest Division of the IAI and their um, multi-discipline conference that they had in connection with the Pacific Northwest Division of the American Academy. And that was, I think, in September last year in Portland, August, September, uh, end of August, early September. And Englert sure. was one of the uh, ex- presenters presenting on bloodstain pattern analysis and some of the cases that he had worked. Not this one, mm-hmm. but some other cases. Uh, so Rod Englert has you know, written books on, on blood spatter. You know, he's, he's considered 
uh, an expert uh, in the field. So, uh, however, he's not available like right away. So he sends his assistant, uh, Robert Stites, uh, to document evidence and take photos. Uh, Stites, he later testifies that he is also a crime scene reconstructurist, uh, working on a master's and a PhD in fluid dynamics, and that he'd investigated homicides for the Army, Naval Intelligence, the FBI. Uh, he photographs David Cam's T-shirt and tells investigators that the blood on Cam's shirt is high-velocity impact spatter. And now, uh, which you know, really, it, that, that only occurs in the presence of a gunshot. So in other words, David Cam must have been present in the garage in near proximity or holding the gun when it was fired, and uh, and that, that blood you know, got onto his shirt. So... Little pause right here. Glenn, let's talk a little bit about uh, high-velocity impact spatter. So the concept of high-velocity impact spatter, and I have to say, I'm trying to think of who first coined it, but I think those terms are attributed to Herb McDonnell. Uh, I believe that's M- correct. M-A-C-D-O-N-N-E-L-L. Now, do you know what Herb McDonnell is famous for in the fingerprint field, Eric? Um, you know what? Now that I think about it, he's, I do have seen his name in relation to fingerprints. I thought I was mixing it up with someone else. What, what is it? He is the inventor of the Magna brush. That's it. Yes. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and he is sort of a traditional criminalist. I mean, he's involved in lots of things. He does trace analysis. Like, quite like Bart talked about in his episode with uh, The Staircase, Herb McDonald, you know, did trace analysis, microscopic analysis, some bloodstain analysis, uh, bloodstain pattern analysis, fingerprints, and involved in many, many different aspects of forensic science in a very, very long career. So, uh, her uh, her McDonald was, I think, the one that characterized high velocity, medium velocity, low velocity blood stains. Now, these terms were introduced into the field, but blood stain pattern experts, at least when I got into the field in the early two thousands, were already pushing back against those terms. They had been in the field for probably twenty years or so, maybe thirty years, and at that time, there. There was Swig Stain that was, you know, the scientific working group for blood stain pattern analysis. By the way, Herb McDonald, Bart Epstein, Terry Labor, Rod Englert, many of the people uh, involved in this case were actually on Swig Stain at the time. And they were really questioning the, the, the validity of those terms, what they mean, and so forth. And I remember in Bart and Terry's workshop, you know, they would talk about this. No, this it, 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 it's a poor term because high velocity implies that in order to create those patterns, the object that's striking the blood has to be traveling at high velocity. And while that is sort of generally true, the more velocity, actually it's the more force that's applied to the blood, the more it tends to atomize it. So if you use a high velocity, for example, bullet, Again, it's really the force and less about the velocity. But the uh, with high force striking it, it will atomize the, the blood into tiny, tiny, tiny microscopic 
stains. In fact, in the military and snipers, they refer to it as the red mist when you get a headshot. It's the the cloud of red droplets, you know, that um, come out of someone when you, when you shoot them from a distance with a high powered rifle. So it's this misting effect that happens. But you can also get very small blood stains by and Bart and Terry would do this in their workshop they would they would have you take a pencil with an eraser on the end and stand at your full height and drop it about 4 or 5 feet into a pool of blood and the pencil would drop at the rate you might expect a pencil to but then you'd see tiny tiny little droplets that are spattered that could be mistaken for quote unquote high velocity blood stain patterns depending on the distance of uh, the target where the, the blood droplets are, are going. So it's this idea that you can look at a pattern of blood and based on the size, shape, and distribution of these pattern or of these blood stains, and that's that's the big phrase, size, shape, and distribution of them, you can then make an inference about the mechanism that caused it, high velocity, medium, or low velocity. Except the problem is there's quite a bit of overlap between the various categories. Hmm. And depending on the distance of the target, you can you can actually create similar-looking targets from low-velocity objects versus high-velocity. Another experiment you would do in the class is you would actually create a high-velocity pattern. But if you held the target farther away, the little misty droplets would never make it to the target. They wouldn't appear on there because they were just too far away. So you'd have a mist of blood that couldn't hit the white target, you know, the, the poster board target. Because the, the smaller the blood stain the the less it travels, the less far far it travels through the air because of wind resistance it just basically doesn't travel as far. So all those tiny little droplets don't go very far. But the the next larger in size, even if they're they're kind of microscopic, you know, maybe a millimeter or so, they would actually still travel far enough to hit the target. So if you held the target far enough away, you can actually have a low-velocity object create a very similar-looking pattern as a high-velocity one, depending on all these different factors. So that's right. why the these bloodstain folks don't like these terms because they can be really misleading. They're, they're very oversimplifying of the effects, and they don't cover some of the nuanced circumstances, which is – I'll wrap this up by saying that in New Zealand, there's a guy by the name of Michael Taylor, and Michael Taylor is really sort of revolutionized. He's been he's been actually not surprisingly he's been talking to a lot of people from the University of Lausanne and has really got his head around this idea of uh, inference and how to uh, classify these different kinds of patterns and then make inferences about the effects as opposed to kind of working backwards the way some bloodstain pattern analysts work. You know, they tend to go, well, could it be this? And then look, and they, they often don't look at it from a hypothesis generation. They don't necessarily state their hypotheses up front. And he's trying to bring this uh, more rigorous methodology to bloodstain pattern analysis, which I'm, I'm a big fan of. Oh, well, it's fantastic. All right, so I get there's some some overlap here, and and maybe some of these terminology is being reworked. But you know, if if say you know I were to you know to you know fire a uh, a handgun, 
and I was standing within, let's say, three or four feet of uh, you know of person that is hit with that bullet, uh, could the the blood stain pattern from that impact, you know, stick on me in such a way that would be indicative that I was you know that close when the uh, the shot was fired? So that's that's a great question. So the answer is it depends. For example, if you shoot them in the head and there's not a lot of hair there and you get that mist, yes, it's actually quite possible. You get this mist, your hand is there, and as the droplets are kind of not flying very far, they're just misting and they're just falling down from gravity. Yeah, you could get many of these tiny little droplets. You could get some of the mist on you as as well. Now, if they have a lot of hair, then sometimes the hair sort of mats that down and protects it. Same okay. thing with clothing. If you're wearing a lot of clothing, you might not get any at all. I mean, the bullet could go through and through, and you would get zero, uh, zero blood stains because the clothing keeps it all encapsulated. Now, if, they, if you shoot them and they start to bleed and it soaks into the clothing and then you shoot into the bloody area of the clothing – you know, after or okay. some, then yes, you could get that. So that's that's why it it's very complicated because there's all these different nuances that would have to be taken into account. So often, what you and this is the Michael Taylor approach. What you should do is look at the saint, the stains that you have, look at the size, shape, and distribution, and then ask. Could it be from this mechanism? Well, yes, okay. Could it also be from this mechanism? Well, yes, okay. So what what can you eliminate and what can't you eliminate? And start going down th- that road. That's why it's it's important to not you know go, oh, I think that there is a gunshot here. Then look for those misty stains and go, yeah, I see those. As as you know from previous episodes, Eric, you know, that's the that's that painting the bullseye you know, around your hypothesis and this approach we talked about, the source level, activity level, what we're really proposing are activity level propositions. Given the size, shape, and distribution of these stains, would one expect to see them under this under this scenario versus this scenario versus that scenario and so forth? And you usually have to, um, ha- you know, propose multiple different scenarios, again, depending on where the person was shot, how many times they were shot, what the caliber of the weapon was. And you said how, you know, how close they're standing. Now, if it's a contact wound or you're really close, you have a higher percentage of that. On the other hand, if you're really close, near contact, then you can get this thing called blowback where some of the gases – from the weapon that are expelled can carry some of the the blood stains with it as well. Although, again, recent research showed that that actually doesn't really happen exactly that way. The gases actually push some of the stains away from the person too. And there are all these different complexities that can happen involving the firearm, the gases being emitted from the firearm, the distance, the clothing, what's being protected. So that's, that's why blood blood stain pattern has really come under a lot of scrutiny because people used to make those sorts of statements. If you shot someone with a firearm and you were close, yeah, you'd have high-velocity spatter impact on you and the gun. Not necessarily. And there were a lot of probably mischaracterized statements and cases in the past as they're really kind of waking up and realizing the limits of their science as they're doing a lot of 
really cool yeah. um, high-speed camera research to really investigate these mechanisms. It's funny you say that. As, as you were earlier when you were describing, like, you know, the gases coming out and being pushed away or, you know, the, the blood and the, the, the gases from the firearm, I, that's exactly what I was picturing is, is these, you know, very super slow motion videos of, uh, of, of all these, you know, being displayed and, and, uh, and that's anyway, that's, that's what I'm picturing in my head right now in this, in this audio format podcast. <laughs> so that's amazing. You should say that Eric, because guess what? I, <laughs> I, I didn't know that you were going to bring this up, but if listeners want to really look at this, there was some great research that was done oh, probably about 10 years or so ago, and it was done through what was called the MFRC. That's the Midwest Forensic Science Research Center, which was out of Ames, Iowa, which now is involved in CSAFE and all that. Yep. But if you go to the website, and I'll, I'll, I'll give the website, it's alvideo, and that's all one word, alvideo.ameslab, that's A M E S. Lab.gov, alvideo.ameslab.gov. You can find over 500 clips of slow Whoa. motion blood stain pattern analysis and take a look at who did the research there. Well, that's cool. Who, who did the research there? <laughs> it is Terry Labor, Bart Epstein, and Michael Taylor from New Zealand. Nice. So the very, very nice. guys I was talking about, they're yeah, the yeah, ones yeah. that. that Got a high speed camera and did. You go there; it's it's incredible to see the work that they did, and you can see it all in slow motion. And look at some of the the firearm shots where they are really testing shooting into blood blood soaked sponges, uh, shooting into things encased, like if it's covered with something like tape or clothes or whatever. How that affects all the and any of the listeners can go check for themselves, and you will see. Tons and tons and tons of videos where they investigate this, and you'll see that it they really blew the field wide open by disproving some of the current conventional wisdom about how these things happen. Which people hadn't really tested it up to this point, and right. you can you can see it with your own eyes how some of these things don't happen the way it was said to have happened at the time. Right. Like, like the, the blood research that, that you, that you and some other people did a few years ago in, in, you know, fingerprint ridges and furrows to see, you know, see how the, that was done. It was kind of, you know, counterintuitive as to what we kind of had thought up to that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it's so simple, but yeah. no one had investigated it at that level. And yeah. it's incredible all the different uh, conditions that they looked at. But, you know, I know that this case was near and dear to them. So they really wanted to be able to investigate the different mechanisms like firearms and how that could have an impact yeah. on the spatter, blowback, and all these other things that were, you know, possible mechanisms. Impact. I see what you did there. You know, the, as an, uh, an impact. The on, impact. Yeah. 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 No, and and you guys may be thinking, you know, we we really don't set some of this stuff up. <laughs> where, where Glenn's like, hey, good, my, since you mentioned that, no, we really don't. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's really cool. I want to see that. Uh, you know, some of those YouTube channels that do the super slow mo stuff are, are really cool, and and then applying to forensic sciences uh, is even better. Yeah. All right, back on to you know the case here at hand. 
Later on, that blood found on David Camp's t-shirt is DNA tested and is found to match uh, Jill, the uh, the five-year-old daughter. So uh, Stites, uh, again, Robert Stites, uh, who's the one now on site at the crime scene, uh, he also finds other bloodstains on the garage door, the shower curtains, the breezeway siding, on a mop and on a jacket. And uh, he finds that uh, it, you know, to him, there appears to be uh, an attempt to clean up the blood with some sort of high pH solution because of the viscosity that the blood uh, has uh, to his eyes. Yeah, I, I remember that part of it, but I never, I, I never saw that evidence myself. I, right. I never okay. saw anything that showed that. I remember this part of it, but I remember there were some there were some questions about how he reached that conclusion. Okay. Based on a visual examination. So uh, David Cam's neighbor, who was also his aunt, because again, there's a big family that lives on this this street. Uh, She was interviewed and said that she heard three loud noises around 9.15 to 9.30 p.m. Uh, There's also a palm print found on the Bronco when it was processed for fingerprints. But uh, again, this is September 2000. So... Glenn, what did we used to do back in 2000 when we found a palm print at a crime scene? Pray for a suspect. Pray for a suspect. So they compare it to David Cam, and it doesn't match him. But again, there, you know, what Glenn's getting at here is there's no APHIS database to search for palms back then. It's, it, it didn't really exist yet. Uh, so if it didn't match your suspect, then you know who knows? Maybe it matches the... Um, you know, uh, some other family member or, or some other member of the public that just happened to come in contact with that uh, vehicle at some other part in the day. So uh, another finding that that becomes a, a big part of the trial later on is that the, the medical examiner in the autopsy of, uh, of Jill, the daughter, finds a blunt force trauma in the genital area. And, and one comment there, if I recall... There was a fairly narrow window for it to have occurred, yes. right? If 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 I'm remembering correctly, I don't. Was it less than twelve hours or something, or something like it that? It was the I believe the pathologist slash medical examiner uh, stated in one of these TV shows that, in her opinion, it was within you know within hours. Yeah. So whether right. that's twelve or twenty four, it 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 was recent you know, a, a recent blunt force trauma to that area. Right. So on October 1st of 2000, uh, you know, based on this evidence of, again, just a quick recap, the high velocity impact spatter on his shirt, the, uh, the neighbor hearing loud noises around, you know, 9.15 to 9.30 when, when he was there or when he arrived there and, the, um, the medical examiner's findings. Uh, he's arrested October 1st, you know, three days after uh, the crime is committed. So the, the, the evidence you know, continues to mount. So let me go through some more evidence uh, from the, uh, the prosecution's theory uh, against David Cam. First, their, their theory about the time had to be adjusted because the medical examiner uh, later found that the time of death was estimated to be more around eight o'clock. So they their their theory is that 
again, he was playing basketball at the community church just down the road. The theory is that he ducked out, drove the basically four-minute drive home, uh, committed the crime, and drove back to continue uh, with the basketball game. A, a comment on the basketball game, because I don't know if it comes on any of the websites, but I seem to recall this. It was a, It's a pickup basketball game. It wasn't like, you know, scheduled teams or sort of organized. It's just kind of guys, you know, pick, pick up game. They just get in, they play, and they sit out. They, you know, whoever wants to play, you play for a little bit. So it wasn't necessarily like... Oh, exactly. He's number 15, and he's the point guard, and you know they're playing the rival town and so on. So it's sort of an informal, whoever play, whoever's around plays, and, you, and they just keep playing game after game after game for the evening. And, and that's a good point. And I was going to mention a little bit later on, but no, it, it kind of fits in well here, um, that the, all the eyewitnesses at the, uh, at the gym, including David Kim's uncle, you know, testify later on that he was there the whole time and they provide this alibi for him. However, you know, he was there right at seven o'clock and, uh, you know, basically you kind of wait for people to show up. And I mean, I used to pick up ball like this all the time. You wait for 10 people to show up. Once 10 people are there, you start playing ball. Right. And then as you know, you finish out, you know, first to 11 or whatever, and then the game ends and you shuffle up with, uh, with new teams especially if anyone else that arrived after that first game started. Well, David Cam sat out for the second game, which started around 7.30. So while everyone else was basically playing ball and not necessarily looking at who's sitting on the sidelines, could he have slipped out around 7.30, committed the crime, and, uh, and then come back to the gym uh, for the last game of the night before anyone noticed? Uh, another piece of evidence that that uh, the prosecution brings up is that there is a phone call uh, documented that that David Cam, you know, called a customer of his his the new company he works for at seven nineteen. So if he's talking to someone on the phone at seven nineteen, he couldn't have been playing basketball uh, at seven o'clock. In the you know the prosecutor as they start beginning their investigation. Uh, they find that uh, David has had a series of affairs uh, throughout his marriage. And even when Kim was pregnant with Jill, they were even separated for a time. And uh, a friend of Kim had said that in you know a few weeks before the murder happened, Kim had made some comments to her, kind of making her think that David was maybe having more affairs, again, just a few weeks before the murders. And even worse, uh, when David was a trooper, he had a history of pulling women over, maybe fondling them, seducing them, having sex with them. And there was even a story of, of like a, a stripper in the squad car. And later on in the trial, there are 13 women that come in to testify about kind of different sexual contact, sexual misconduct issues. Did you find that part credible? That, that he did that stuff? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, he, he at least in the interviews I saw, you know, admitted to, to having affairs. Now, now that you mentioned, don't recall him admitting to any kind of misconduct. Right. On, on How, the job or... On the job. Right. However, he, he, you know, he did admit to making, making mistakes with, uh, you know, with, with you know, affairs while he was married. I found that to be credible. 
I I believed that that these things probably did happen. And part of it's because certainly the number of them as well. Yes, 13. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it is sort of this whole thing you see with the Me Too. There's the first one, there's the second one. And then there's just a flood of, oh, yeah, 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 I, I, something similar happened. So, I mean, I, I think they established, prosecution established quite nicely. There was definitely bad choices being made both personally and even while professionally. Uh, yeah. Now, if that makes him a murderer, we'll get to that later. But well, I, I did believe that, and I believe that that was certainly part of Showing his character. Absolutely. And it, you know, my first thought was, well, wait a minute. You got 10 years in as a trooper and then you decided to go work for your uncle? Like, yeah. I, I actually, that that's that's sort of why I asked the question in the beginning, just to kind of. Yeah. Why, why not wait long enough to get vested and, you know, state pension and all this? I, I And that's sort of why I was sort of curious. I really want him to know. What was the deal to go work with the uncle? How much was he going to make versus a state trooper? He did say he was going to be making more and that it would, you know, let him spend more time with, you know, family. I actually had that. I believe both of those things. And I would again. Yeah. I mean, you're, you know, a rural state trooper. It's you're not necessarily pulling in the big money uh, from that, but it, it still makes you kind of think, you know. Things that make you go, hmm, to quote the sure. uh, the wise CNC Music Factory. Wow, dude. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. Also later on uh, in the trial, prosecution also finds two inmates that uh, testify that uh, David Cam had confessed or at least you know said to them that he had committed this crime. Did you find them credible? Uh, I mean, I, I think... We've gone through enough of these stories uh, about uh, you know jailhouse snitches, where my instant reaction is is not credible. I, I am shocked at this day and age that they are still allowing this kind of thing, unless it's like an undercover friggin' officer who's right. in jail, you know, for a week or two with the guy trying to. I I don't want to hear from him. I, I I'm serious. I, I I have no idea how this is still allowed, whether or not it's true or not. I didn't find it credible, but if it's true, I, I don't know how this is allowed. I it, Like you said, Eric, there's so many cases where it so was such many BS, cases. and it was, it's so manipulative. It's so, hey, if you say this, you can get – and man, I mean the stories out of I – mean, whether you watch documentaries or – I have a friend that's been to prison and some family members. Whether or not you hear family stories and friend stories about prison, man, these guys would do anything to shave a few days off of their sentence. And if you're talking months or years, <laughs> okay. Sign me up. Right. So I, given some of the things that can't come in in the legal setting, of all the things you do let in, that seems absolutely insane to me. All right, so that's that's basically the evidence uh, for the prosecution. They you know they go to trial. Oh, hey, what, one one other thing, just to clarify too. Sure. The officers that all worked with him, the investigators that knew him, and all this. By the time that this is going to trial, 
I mean, they are convinced they they do have the right guy. I mean, they you know, there's no. They, I mean, they're not hedging their bets at all. Or no. got you know, it just seems really unlikely that he was capable of this. They're full on. Oh no, this guy's a scumbag. He did this thing to all these women. He wanted out of his uh, marriage and the p- possible sexual assault on the daughter. Maybe the wife found out that he was doing something to the daughter. She confronted him with it, kind of similar to the staircase. The theory is that the wife caught, you know, the the pictures on the internet uh, yep. with the gay escorts and confronted him, and he lost his, you know, and then killed her. In in this, there's that same kind of thing that either he wanted out on the timing of it, or she maybe discovered that something was happening with the daughter and had confronted him recently with it. So. He was very motivated, and all of these cops are at this point are, are all in that. Oh yeah, he is. He's the kind of person that not only could do this, but most definitely did this. And I mean, and look at you know what they're what they're finding. You know that yes, they they're finding oh this you know this guy we know yeah we know him. However, he's been having this series of affairs, and you know, we've investigated you know domestic. Uh, violence, domestic uh, homicides before, you know, that's the kind of thing in, you know, that leads up to, you know, a wife being murdered. There's this, the medical examiner, you know, saying that there's this, um, not only that there's blunt force trauma, but that the medical examiners are saying that, you know, it was because of, uh, of, of abuse that had happened in recent hours before the murder. And the expert saying that there's, you know, his shirt has high velocity impact spatter, which means he was, uh, if not holding the gun within, you know, a couple feet, you know, of these victims of the little girl who's that's the blood that was identified on him uh, when the the shot was fired. Yeah, if, if he didn't pull the trigger himself, he was standing right there. Right. So uh, they take this all to trial. And uh, David Cam is found guilty and sentenced to 195 years. However, two years later, uh, there is an appeals court that rules that the 13 women uh, testifying about all of the sexual conduct, sexual misconduct, uh, should not have been allowed to testify, and a new trial is ordered. And that appeals court was pretty harsh on the trial judge too they were they were (laughs) they they laid into him and said you should not have even considered this for really one much less 13 yes uh well i mean not only talking about i mean prejudicial yeah but i mean just the bolstering you know just sort of the same thing over and over although no legal scholar and again in take the harvey weinstein case or some of these other more high you know high profile you know uh, actors and producers coming under scrutiny of late they are marching a number of witnesses all kind of (laughs) saying the same thing although the the point is their testimony is directly related to the crime it is not a crime to have an affair so I think what what we're saying here is, you know, do we believe these women, you know, in general that he did this? Yeah. However, th- that doesn't 
you know what the what the appeals court is saying that didn't really apply to this murder case and prosecution's argument is all towards motive because right. it establishes a pattern it sort of a disrespect for women and that he's the kind of person that could do this he's no upstanding citizen ex cop family man in fact just the opposite right if if he can you know, basically molest women that he pulls over as a trooper, then he, he can molest his daughter and, uh, you know, kill his family. Yes. All right. Well, that is where we're going to leave it off for this episode. And we will pick back up uh, next week for the conclusion uh, of David Cam. You know, I'm actually really curious for people to, to you know, that, that, that you know, don't spoil the ending and, and see kind of, you know what comes up next because uh, next episode is where all the twists and turns start and holy cow do, <laughs> are there some twists and turns in this case indeed so uh looking forward to that and and hope you guys you know enjoy not our normal thing that we get into but you know when we step aside from the papers and the interviews and uh and, and all that to actually dive deep into a specific case uh, not that we you know, we won't do interviews in relation to this as well. This plan is also to still interview, uh, uh, you know, Bart uh, Epstein about uh, his involvement in this case as well. And, uh, you know, some of the things that, uh, that he may have to say about this uh, from, you know, his really close involvement and perspective. All right. Well, Glenn, I- I'd ask, you know, if you had any classes coming up, but I- I'm not sure that... <laughs> <laughs> that you necessarily do, but maybe later on in the year you've got a couple of things scheduled. Well, let me let me just say this. I've been doing a lot of work on the on the website. So if you do want a list of upcoming classes uh, towards the end of the year, including some ones <laughs> that have been added, assuming that they are able to go. And yes. We did add a new one, uh, the Practical Answers class. Uh, which is with the defense attorney, and uh, that class has been added to June in the San Diego area, which is a wonderful time to visit San Diego, and a number of other classes later in the year that presumably will go. Go to my website, which is EliteForensicServices.com. That's EliteForensicServices.com. You'll find a list of all the upcoming classes, as well as classes that if you're looking to host a class, you'll find a list of classes that I teach, or even custom-made training for your agency, for you and a small group of examiners. I'm able to customize whatever you guys need. Man, I'm looking forward to doing some traveling. I'm missing my travel. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, uh, go, go to www.EliteForensicServices.com. All right. If, when you're in San Diego, see if you can get to Tacos El Gordo. Oh, uh, sure delicious okay uh so uh recommendation i'm sure everyone down that area knows what i'm talking about all right well uh, i hope to also see you guys here soon um you know at uh, at a conference or in some other training uh but until then uh glad to come to your ears through the podcast if you uh you know have anything for us any comments on you know anything we've talked about on the show Write in Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com or Eric at RayForensics.com. Follow us on Twitter at DoubleLoopPod, also Instagram, or go to our website, DoubleLoopPodcast.com. We got some merch there, and maybe without uh, going out to shopping in the mall, you need a t-shirt or a mug or something delivered to your house, <laughs> you can do it that way. 
But in any case, the uh, statements made are those of the speaker and don't represent anyone that they work for. But with that, uh, I guess I'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. 